Uh, we are going to open our Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to give you guys a real fast background as to what we've been doing. Uh, we started at the beginning of the summer, a series going through the book of Hebrews 11, a chapter of Hebrews 11. And uh, the whole idea behind this is to really try to identify God, to see God as a great God. Uh, traditionally, Hebrews chapter 11 is identified as sort of the hall of faith. Uh, we're purposefully not calling it the hall of faith because we recognize what that tends to imply is that all these people are great. They're wonderful, powerful, amazing, uh, exemplar people, and somehow, some way, uh, if you can live in their footsteps, then you'll become arrogant and prideful, and you'll look down upon everybody else who's not living like you, right? Or you will feel absolutely, utterly defeated because you're such a loser and you can't live like Abraham, all right? So that, our, our goal is to not exemplify, bring these guys up and say, these guys are wonderful, we want to live according to them, but our goal really is to look at the God that they serve, and see how God has shown himself powerful and strong on their behalf, even in their weaknesses, even in the areas in which they fail, even in the areas in which they've not succeeded. And even though the writer of Hebrews wants to bring to our attention some of the elements or snapshots in their lives in which they succeeded, we know very clearly that not all these guys were basically as, as great as Hebrews chapter 11 sort of identifies them as, um, meaning that they failed even though Hebrews 11 points out some of the areas of their successes. So really the point that we want to be looking at is how big God is and how great God is in that when we look to him and we trust in him, in spite of hardships, in spite of difficulties that we kind of suffer and go on, that go on in our lives, maybe even sometimes for prolonged periods of time, we can still look to God, trust in God, because God is faithful to show himself strong. Now with that being said, because we've been taking a look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's easy for us to kind of get a little bit of a myopic view as to the book. And what I want to make certain that we do is that we understand Hebrews chapter 11 in its original context because it's just one chapter. And uh, for us to just look at this one chapter and sort of isolate it without understanding it within larger context would not be helpful as well for us as well. So what I want to try to do is to very quickly summarize for you some of the ideas or the context that's going on in the rest of the book of Hebrews, uh, place it in its context. I'm going to pray, then we're going to get to work looking at the subject matter or the little snapshot or vignette of this guy, Abraham. So in short, what's taking place, uh, these were Jewish Christians that came to trust Christ, came to be uh, faithful followers of the Messiah, Jesus, uh, in some period of time in the early church, all right? And what had happened was, because it was not popular, because what was going on, especially within Jewish circles, uh, Jesus was sort of being uh, marginalized and separated. Therefore, the people that followed Jesus were being marginalized and separated. People were losing their jobs. People were losing their status. People were losing their wealth. They were losing their inheritances. They were losing family. In the first century, that was a big deal. Um, to lose all that type of stuff was very difficult and very hard. So the temptation for them was to basically pull back a little bit from Jesus, to not emphasize him, to sort of de-emphasize him, to marginalize Jesus, to not live exemplary lives, emphasizing, proclaiming, standing fast, looking forward to Jesus. They were, it was easier for them to kind of pull back and to just sort of fall back into some sort of more ritualistic, traditional Judaism than it was for them to live in terms of being vocal adherents to Christ. So as a result of that, they were pulling back. So the writer of Hebrews writes basically saying, don't do that. Don't you know, don't you know that living for God is always going to bring about difficulties? Don't you know that everybody 
everybody who's ever lived for God from the very beginning of time has always had to bear, as the Puritans would say, losses and crosses. Everybody. No matter who you are. There will always be losses and crosses attached to this whole large holistic walk of life following God. Following God's ways. Don't you know even beginning from Cain and Abel, even Abel lost. He lost his life because he was doing the right thing. He was following God. He was placing confidence in God. And then he moves on and talks about Noah and he talks about, you know, it's a different Enoch and some of these guys that basically all of, he's trying to go through this sort of uh, historical narrative of men and women, of people, just normal people like you and I, who have basically just at various moments in their life, various moments of crisis, various moments of difficulty, have just placed confidence in God and obeyed God. And rather than retreating, rather than pulling away, rather than marginalizing Christ, rather than defaming him, rather than denying him, they would just hold on to God. And yes, they suffered consequences. Yes, they lost things. Yes, they bore their various crosses. And and that's what the writer of Hebrews is basically saying. So when he gets to Hebrews chapter 11, he's like, you guys aren't alone. You're not alone. You're not the only one suffering because of living for Christ. It's a normal, common thing. In fact, he brings everything sort of to a climactic point in chapter 12, where he basically starts out the whole chapter, where he's like, look, even Jesus, even Jesus suffered loss because he was following God. Even Jesus, he suffered great loss because he was faithful to follow the will and the plan and the pattern of God. All right? But even still, Jesus came out ahead, because we know the story. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. And then even after that, he ascended into heaven. And even after that, Jesus is going to come back again. So we know that Jesus comes out on top. We know that Jesus, even though the cards that he was dealt were difficult and hard, and we can make all sorts of excuses and be like, you know what, well, maybe Jesus succeeded because life was good for him. It was horrible for him. I mean, Jesus had no place to live, no place to lay his head, he describes. No money, he was a peasant. His dad was just some sort of a carpenter. Everybody thought his mom was a slut. I mean, think about the reputation. That was the town he lived in. Everybody just thought his mom was some sort of whore, like town whore everybody slept with. That was the reputation that Jesus had growing up. And in a town like that, it's maybe 300, 400 people, a lot circulates very quickly. And whatever stigma you get sticks with you for the rest of your life, that was Jesus. It wasn't because Jesus had a great life, everything was stacked up good for me, he had a good education, a lot of money in the bank, all sorts of things that attributed to his success. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus trusted God, and even at the very end, God brings him out on top because God is great. God is great. And so the writer of Hebrews is basically urging the people to whom he's writing. And consequently, you and I, who are reading it 2,000 years later, might be going through our own struggles bearing our own crosses, suffering our own losses. And we might be tempted to sort of retreat a little bit, to pull back a little bit, to calm down a little bit, to stop being so vocal about Christ, or maybe not even to be vocal about Christ at all, because after all, what is it going to gain us? I mean, we look at it that way. We approach Christianity as some sort of idea of like, what is it in, what is in it for me? And really, the, the, the bottom line is, is that even approaching it that way won't work. Christianity will not work for us. 
Because at the end of the day, we're, trying to, we're looking at ourselves as the ultimate principle rather than God as the ultimate principle. The way Jesus saw God as the ultimate principle, as Abraham saw God as the ultimate, Abel as ultimate, Noah as ultimate. You get the picture? So that's, this, this is where we find ourselves is in this tension of constantly asking ourselves, constantly being tempted between sort of these subordinate principles and the ultimate principle of God, who God is, what God is like, living for him, suffering for him, whatever the cost may be because God is ultimate. And yet at the same time, being quick to take what's temporary and live for that with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and mind. And Abraham becomes one of these guys that in the middle of it all, in the middle of the world in which he lived in, looked to God, trusted in God, followed God, and therefore he gets placed into this narrative, this story in Hebrews chapter 11, to basically say to the Christians in the first century, guys, you can do it. You can do it. Abraham did it. God was with him. God commended him. He had faith and confidence in God. That's basically what we're going to look at. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work. Um, and try to understand a little bit more about this. So God, help us right now. We pray that you would open our eyes, uh, give us spiritual ability to see these things. But God, we also pray right now that you'd help all of these things to take very practical root in our lives, that we would live these things out. God, like Abraham, uh, who is willing to live in tents as a means of just conveying to the world around him that his real home is not in walled cities. His real home is not in fortified buildings. His real home uh, is in God. Uh, he's the architect. He's the builder of this thing. He's looking to God. So God, help us right now. We pray that you'd help us to learn from Abraham's life, to live forth a life that's uh, glorifying to you and finds great pleasure in the meantime on the journey. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, three things that we're going to take a look at here this morning. And the whole idea, again, is sort of asking this question, what does it take? How do we live like this? How do we live in such a way that we keep ourselves from retreating, but rather instead we keep ourselves moving forward on the path that God has for us? The first thing that we're going to take a look at is that it involves God's call. I want to read the passage here, and then we're going to get to work on it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. I think the slide will be up here. I'm going to read it. You guys can follow along. It says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went out to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations and whose designer and builder is God. So basically, this little snapshot, we're going to basically call this Life of Abraham 1.0 because next week we're going to take a look at Sarah. Uh, The text kind of gets punctuated real quick, looks at Sarah. It says, by faith, Sarah uh, looked to God. And then after that, it's going to take a look at Abraham again. The story's going to pick up. One thing we realize is that in Abraham, the life of Abraham, actually gets the majority of airtime in all of Hebrews chapter 11. There's something very unique, something very special about Abraham, even on a broader level. I mean, Abraham basically is attributed as being sort of the father of three of the major world religions today. Like uh, Judaism, trace their lineage back to Abraham, Father Abraham. Christians, obviously, through Judaism, by way of Judaism, back to Abraham. And Islam basically views Abraham as being sort of the father of their entire world system and religion and worldview. 
And so he's obviously an important guy, and obviously the writer of Hebrews thinks so as well, because he writes the majority of his stuff about him. But the first thing we want to notice is that this involves a call. God calls Abraham from where he was at. The story basically picks up in around Genesis chapter 12. I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you guys to read it. In fact, you know what? I am going to read it. Sorry. Hebrews chapter 12. Why don't you turn there real quick? Turn there real quick. Genesis chapter 12. I'm just going to read a couple of the first few verses. I don't think I have it on the screen. So if you want, you can just listen to it. Or if you've got night vision, you can try. Um, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in your families all the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord told him. I'm going to stop right there. The whole idea is this, is that God calls Abraham. Calls Abraham. So the point that I want to make in terms of kind of leading off into this is part of this whole idea is recognizing first and foremost is that there's a call, that God called Abraham. Now what's a call? Basically a call is this. It's really God coming into a person's life and interrupting circumstances and situations in their life. God coming into their life, into their system, into their world, and basically disrupting the way things have been. And in order to really change them, to bring about a new future, a better future. That's what God does with Abraham. And really, if you take that same template, and you kind of look at that throughout the majority of the people throughout the Old Testament, you see the same idea. Gideon is an example of that. God calls Gideon. You look at like Jeremiah. God calls Jeremiah. All of these things are sort of moments when God comes into life. Sometimes they're crisis moments. Sometimes they're just normal moments. Oftentimes they are crisis moments where God comes in and he disrupts or interrupts the world in such a way as to call them and to change things as to bring about something better. That's basically what happens with the life of Paul the Apostle. Remember Paul? He's on the road to a city called Damascus. And he's going to basically go kill Christians. He actually thinks he's on mission from God. He actually thinks he's doing God's mission work, uh, which is to go kill Christians. I mean, after all, that's exactly what the Bible says, right? Go kill Christians. Well, that's what Saul thought. So in his mind, even though he thinks he's on a mission for God, God disrupts him. God basically comes upon his life and interrupts his plans. And it's at that moment that Paul basically says, I was apprehended by God, God called me. Paul sort of describes this in sorts of fragments all throughout his writings. One of the best ones I love is right here in Romans chapter 1 where Paul says this. He says, Paul, I'm a servant of Christ. He says, I'm called to be an apostle. I love this. Paul recognized that who he was, it wasn't by choice. It wasn't by something that Paul basically just woke up one day and says, you know, my career of choice is apostle. I really want to drown. I want to be beaten. I want to just be defamed and shamed and have my stuff stolen you know that's what I want to do for the rest of my life it's just be an apostle now Paul realized I was called I didn't choose this for myself I wasn't born into this God called me to this and Paul by faith in the same way I think like as Abraham obeyed did it that's why I think Paul says through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith that's basically Paul saying I was called to be an apostle but I obeyed to do it. I lived it out. I obeyed what God asked me to do. So first of all, all of this really kind of begins with a call. I'm going to tell you about a couple people, and then uh, I'll finish up with kind of a personal illustration, the first of which is Augustine. 
A guy by the name of Augustine, some of you guys might know who he was, he kind of lived in the fourth century. Uh, but in the year 386, uh, we know this because Augustine actually tells about this. Some of you might have heard the confessions of Augustine. And basically tells about the story where in the summer of 386, he was sitting around in a garden. And all of a sudden he's kind of hanging out in this garden. He hears a song coming out from the voice of a little kid. And the song basically goes something like this. Pick up the book and read it. Pick it up and read it. And all of a sudden, Augustine just thinks, you know, maybe, maybe this is God speaking to me. I mean, he wasn't a Christian. Augustine was a brilliant mind, basically studying to be a communicator. Uh, back in that day, it was just, I guess it was cool to just kind of hang out and talk about stuff. And like the, the more eloquent you were, the, the higher you, 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 know, you rose. I think probably the probability of you getting better jobs, like maybe being a really good lawyer or something like that, uh, were elevated. And so uh, Augustine really excelled in this. He was really smart. He was about ready to go to, uh, to, uh, to college in Milan. He was a really smart guy. Uh, probably studied to become a lawyer. Uh, he was gifted in this. He was actually engaged to be married at this particular time. Prior to this whole scenario going on in, in uh, Augustine's life, he was very promiscuous. He had lots of sexual partners. In fact, uh, some of the history basically describes Augustine actually having a child out of wedlock. He was a horrible deadbeat dad that never actually took care of his kid. Even though his, you know, his, his girlfriend at the time had a baby, he never took care of the kid, never gave any money to it. He was just a typical deadbeat, jock, horrible redneck style, just kid trying to figure out life. And here's Augustine, all of a sudden hanging out in his garden, and here's this kid singing a song, pick it up and read. Pick it up and read. He has no idea what it's about. So he finds a Bible thinking, maybe God wants me to pick up a Bible and read it. So he takes the Bible, opens it up on a table, and all of a sudden he just starts reading the very first thing that he finds. And the very first verse that he comes to is out of the book of uh, Romans. It says this, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in quarreling or being jealous, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Basically, at that moment, uh, Augustine realized this was God's call upon my life. I mean, he realized it's basically God saying, Augustine, stop getting drunk. It's horrible for you. It's not my best for you. It's not the desire I will have for you. Stop being sexual and being immoral and being engaged in all these orgies and all sorts of sexual relationships that are getting you nowhere. In fact, just destroying you and destroying other people. Stop living that life. That's not the life that I have for you. And it was as if the voice of God called Augustine. And it was at that moment, he basically changed his life. Within a few years after that, Augustine went in the ministry and began to sort of be known for who he was. Started writing all sorts of uh, great, profound theological treaties and all that type of stuff. But the point that I would make is this, is that there was a call in Augustine's life when God came to him and said, go, leave this old country, leave this old lifestyle, leave that which is tattered remnants from this old lifestyle and pursue a lifestyle that I have for you that is actually life-giving rather than life-taking to yourself and to others. Another guy I want to tell you about is one of my favorite authors, favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. When I was first a Christian, uh, somebody gave me a, his book. I was maybe around 15, 16 years old. Um, I didn't know anything about him. He was probably one of the greatest preachers of the 18, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the 20th century, around the 1900s. He was in London. Uh, phenomenal, amazing preacher. Love the guy. Love the guy. I've listened to tons of his stuff over the years. Read most of his stuff. And one of the things that I really find profound about this guy is that he was actually on the verge of studying to become a doctor. He was, he was actually studying to become a doctor on the verge of becoming a doctor. Uh, he was sort of the, the next great mind, next great thing. He was actually studying as a, re, in a, as a residency, uh, in his residency in the, city, or in, the, in the city of London at a hospital called St. Bart's, 
one of the most well-known, renowned uh, medical uh, facilities, really in all the world at that particular period of time. And while he's studying in his residency, his whole goal, his whole desire in life is to be this doctor, be well-known. Uh, in 20th century London, to be a doctor in St. Bart's was, was everything. I mean, it, it, you guys ever seen that, like, that program on TV? I think it's called like Doctors. You know what I'm talking about? So you're like, like for you women, you're like, I watch that every day. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? No, you know, anyways. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen a couple times. And all these guys, just, they just look, abs- I mean, their faces are like perfect, and their bodies are perfect. You know this guy's got a lot of cash. I mean, they are literally at the top end of every social scale, all right? Th- that was kind of the life that Lloyd-Jones was on his way towards. And, in 20th century, London, St. Bart's, everything was at your fingertips. He was on his way to that path. And there was a guy that he had known about in that hospital who was one of the chief medical doctors in the world at that particular period of time that he was studying under, that he was learning under. And this guy had been in sort of a relationship for some period of time. And at some point, his girlfriend, that was actually his fiance, this this great doctor, all of a sudden, his girlfriend died. And, and this guy went into such a great depression, great, horrible depression in life that Lloyd-Jones actually just watched this guy's life kind of spiral out of control. So one day, he tells us this moment where he was sitting in St. Bart's Hospital around a fireplace in sort of the back area of the residency. And this guy, this great well-known doctor, comes walking into this back area. And these great doctors would never kind of rub shoulders with these you know, young residents. And uh, yet this particular time, he comes into this back area and he notices Lloyd-Jones sitting at this... Uh, fire and he asked if he can come sit down and warm himself next to the fire and Lloyd-Jones said yeah and it's fine and for the next two hours Lloyd-Jones describes how he just saw this guy who had everything all the money who had once prior to her death had the most beautiful girl throughout London she was kind of you know you can I would imagine in my mind the guy was just sort of like the best known best looking guy all the money best looking girl and his girlfriend just all of a sudden dies he said for two hours he, the guy just stared into the fire and didn't say a word. And, and Lloyd-Jones later would write that it was at that moment he felt God speaking to his heart. And what he described is he basically said, what I saw was as if all of humanity, the vanity of humanity, right before my eyes. There's a guy that had everything, everything, and yet it just left him defeated and crumbled. And Lloyd-Jones says that it was at that moment I just felt God call me and what was so unique about Lloyd-Jones was he actually left the discipline of medicine and basically went on to become one of the greatest preachers throughout England. My point is that not everyone's going to be called to ministry in any way. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, some of you guys are going to be called to the workplace, and you need to do it well. But all of us, part of this whole path is to hear the call of God. God's call comes, and it comes, and oftentimes it's, it's really calling us to leave something to lay aside something in order to embrace something else. That's what happened with Augustine. That's what happened with Lloyd-Jones. In a lot of ways, I'll tell you about myself and my wife. Uh, we were both 23. We were, had great jobs. and were you know, spectacular, but I mean, we were just newly married. My wife and I were both 23. We'd been married two years. And we were living down in Orange County. Um, we were just living a couple miles from the beach. We had just gotten married. We were enjoying our time together. And at some point, I'm going to go through all the details of it, we felt like God called us to move to San Luis Obispo. We didn't know anything about San Luis Obispo. The only things that we actually knew about Slow was that, one, there's a pink hotel, and two, that there was a college. It was the only things that we knew about it. 
We didn't know anything else about St. Louis. We didn't know it was a great place to live. Honestly, sometimes I tell people about this. I think, you know, if, if I had known how great Slow was, I think I probably would have second-guessed myself if I was actually called here. It'd be like, you know, feeling like, I, I think I'm called to Hawaii. <laughs> or like Costa Rica, you know, it's like, if someone were to come to me like, I think you're called to Costa Rica, I'd be like, no, I'm certain I'm not called to Costa Rica, because I would just surf all day. That's all I would do. I probably wouldn't preach or do anything. I would just surf. And, and the reality is, I, I, I would second guess that and question that. But God called us here. He moved us here. Called us to leave some things behind and to move here. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have jobs. We didn't even have a place to live. I mean, we drove up here a couple times prior to moving here, just kind of check things out to find a place, to look for some spots. Uh, we did not, neither one of us had a job when we finally landed here. We finally got a place. We didn't even know how we got our rent approved. I mean, you know, we go sign the lease, and he's like, you know, where do you guys work? Uh, we don't have jobs. Okay, sign. We're like, serious? Are you sure you want to, like, check references or something? I mean, it's like, no, you're all good. We're like, okay, I guess this is awesome. I mean, the Lord is in control of this whole thing. So we move in. We start a Bible study in our house. Within, like, nine months, our, our house is completely overflowing with people. We don't even have enough room for people. We're kind of like, what do we do next? We don't have room. People are sitting upstairs in our bedroom. It's just, it's a horrible thing. We don't, we don't you know, it's, people are leaving our house really late. I'm, I'm like, you know, anyways, the, the point is like, what do we do next? We felt like God said, just, I felt like one day God just said, go for a walk. I went for a walk. I was hanging around outside. I was walking by this old church downtown at Seventh Avenue Church. I see the pastor come walking up to him. I'm just like, hey, you know, I'm just curious. Do you guys happen to have any like space that we can rent? You know, we got a little Bible study in our house. Our, my wife and I are planning and planting a church, kind of in the process of it right now. We've got a lot of people in our house right now. A lot of them are students. Uh, so that, that basically translates, we don't have any money. So um, it, it, is, is there any way that, you know, you guys have a room or something like that we can rent out or use or just, you know, use more so rather than rent? And, and, and the guy's just like, he's all, it's really ironic that you come right now. Because for the past five years, we've had a Baptist church meeting in this church the past five years. And seven days ago, the guy just came to us and said they're not going to be using it anymore. So it's free if you guys can use it. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Okay, well, it's, we're, we're in it. We're, we'll take it. So we were there for several years. And then God just began to bless that. We started church services on Sunday morning. God started bringing people. And, you know, as things grew, I mean, like I said, we moved here. I didn't have a job. My, my wife didn't have a job. God provided jobs. I started working at Big Sky Cafe. It was the very first uh, you know, employee that had ever hired there. I was working at other jobs downtown around. My wife worked at an employment agency. And it was just God's way of providing step by step along the way. The funny thing is, when we moved here, God was not like, look, here's the next 18 steps. Get to step 18 and then come back to me and I'll tell you what's up. I mean, God was just like, look, I'm telling you, step by step. Step one is move to slow. All right, uh, okay. What about jobs? God's like, move to slow first. Then I'll tell you jobs. Move to slow. God's more like, what, what about jobs? God says, go down, go check it out. And then God, each step of the way, provides. My point is this. God just wants us to keep being faithful. And that's where we're at as a church today. We moved in this building uh, a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago. I mean, as far as like Sunday morning services, we moved in December. So we haven't even been in here on Sunday morning services for, you know, barely over half a year. We moved in here. We were absolutely convinced that, that God wanted us to move in here. It was, it was just beyond question that God says, you know, here's the door. I want you to walk through this. It was way more than what we had been spending before. The Lord's just like, go for it. Do it. I want you to do. And all of a sudden, we're just like, recession. Everything hits. But you know what? All the way along, God has always provided. And his whole point is to just say, you guys keep being faithful stewards, and you just keep being faithful followers. That's it. 
follow me and make good with what you have and be good stewards with it all. I'll keep providing. I'll keep showing the way. Keep showing what, you know, step 19 is. Step 20, 25. Just, you got to keep walking step by step and I'll show you. See, that's the problem with us. Is that unlike Abraham who says he went out. Take a look at the verse again. You guys got to look at it again. Verse 8. He says he went out not knowing where he was going. <laughs> Think about that. Can you imagine that dinner conversation? Like, hey, what's up, Sarah? Uh, pack it up, woman. I mean, we're leaving. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, yeah, we're leaving. We're leaving tomorrow. Like, where are we going? I have no clue. <laughs> I, I just know that I came home from being out in the field. God said, go. And, and, and we're going to go. So you don't know where we're going. You don't know what's ahead. You don't know anything about this whole move, this whole ordeal. You just know, go. Yes, go. Can you imagine that? That was it. Promise is oftentimes for us, we're like, I want to know exactly every little detail that's going down, because here's, here's what we want to do. We want to analyze it, we want to assess it, and at the end of the day, if it's still approving to us, then we'll put our stamp of approval on it, and then we will let ourselves go. You know what that is? That's just saying we want, to be all, we want to always be in control. We don't want to relinquish control. We always want to have some sort of hand on it. Some hand somewhere on the wheel. And it's not walking by faith. Walking by faith is taking God at his word. Even though we don't see the end. Even though we don't know where it's heading. Even though we're not even aware as to what's taking place. It's just taking God at his word because he's worthy. Because he's faithful. So that's, in essence, what we see happening here. The second thing that I want you to notice is this. Is that faith also involves obedience. I'm going to just read you a couple of verses real fast. This will be quick. John 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. So Jesus basically makes this connection between love and obedience. So if we claim to love Jesus, then there's a corresponding obedience that will follow. John 14, 24, he says, He who does not love me uh, will not obey my teaching. Um, this idea that even if we claim to have relationship with Jesus, and yet we don't obey him, uh, we're actually giving demonstration of the fact that we don't trust him. We don't really truly love him. We don't value him. First John 5, 3 says this. This is the love of God, to obey his commands. And I love this little parenthetical statement he just puts at the end of this. He says, his first commands aren't burdensome. See, the, the lie of the devil is always this. If you do what God tells you to do, life's going to be really hard. I, mean, I remember this as a very young Christian. And I, I still remember. I go back in my mind, I'm just like, I, I remember this thought of thinking that, if I trust Jesus, if I trust God, God is going to make me marry the ugliest girl in the church. Honestly. But you know, she's going to love Jesus. She's going to be the girl, like, all Pentecostal, raising her hand, like, memorizing scripture and being able to teach really good, but she's just, like, horribly ugly. I just remember the Lord, I just feeling like, that's what God's plan is for my life. It's just like, this is horrible. And the reality is, is this not what God has at all. I mean, somehow we get these weird, perverted concepts or ideas of God and God's plan for our lives. And that's why I think John adds that little, you know, addendum. He adds that little parenthetical statement that, you know, God's commands aren't burdensome. They're actually life-giving. Meaning, they're agreeable to you. When you follow God, when you trust him, when you take him at his word, when you take him for what he's worth, he's not going to give you anything beyond what you're able to carry. His commands aren't burdensome. 
The third thing is this. You know, before we jump into that, last thing I would just say about that is that, you know, I think all too often we, we live as practical atheists. Here's what I mean. Is that in word, we, we affirm Christianity. We affirm Christian theological statements and dogma, and concepts and ideas. I mean, in word, we can say, I follow Jesus. I love God. I do what God wants. I go to church. I read my Bible. I do all these good Christian things. And, and I don't sin. I don't do bad things. I avoid NASCAR. I avoid all sorts of evil things that might disrupt or, you know, make God sad. Like country music. But the reality is that what ends up happening is we, we become sort of arrogant. We think somehow, some way, we were right with God when we're really not right with God. But it's all in word. But when it comes to actual practice, doing, living, acting, not theory, but action. It's like we're practical atheists. We spend our money as if there really is no God. We spend our money as if money is our God. We use our time as if time is, is, is our God, as if, as if there's an infinite amount of it, and so therefore we just squander and waste it. We use our sexuality in such a way as if there is no head or covering over us or God beyond us or greater than us who's actually gifted sexuality to us as a gift, a good thing. We squander being parents or being spouses because we live practically as if there is no God who's over us, who gives us energy and strength to do things for his glory. That's what a practical atheist is. But in reality, the invert of that is obedience. When God says, we do, we live. The last thing is this, is that it involves really looking at God's provision. This final thing, this step, the way that we keep ourselves from retreating, but rather instead advancing, is it involves really looking at God's provision. Uh, this actually involves sort of a negative and a positive principle. Um, but here's what we basically see with regard to it is this, is that Abraham looks to God. Take a look at the verse again. This is in about verse 9. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac, Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city whose foundations and whose designer and builder is God. So first of all, the negative principle is this, is it means that you've got to be able to look around you and identify that all other foundations are crumbling. Abraham did. Abraham did. That's why he was, you know, here, here's the interesting thing, thing that I want to say about this. Interesting aspect about Abraham's life, okay? If you read all through Abraham's life, one of the things that I noticed as I was just reading through Genesis about Abraham, he's living in, in an environment, in an area where everybody had cities, big, massive cities. I mean, think of cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, big, massive cities with big walls. Uh, cities of the Moabites, cities of the Canaanites. Think big, massive structures with big, massive walls, with big, massive defenses, strong towers set up to protect all the goods that are within inside. But Abraham makes a conscientious decision not to build a city. That's kind of reading that. I'm just like, that's kind of interesting. Why? Was it because Abraham lacked money? No, man, Abraham was filthy rich. Was it because he lacked technology? Not at all. I mean, he had, he had technology all around him. He had all the abilities, or at least the means to obtain the abilities. It's because he lacked manpower. No. 
I mean, we're even told that Abraham had around 300 warriors that worked for him. I mean, I'm, I'm not a foreman. I've never kind of really worked on job sites like that. But I can't imagine it takes 300 people to build a house, let alone a bunch of houses over some period of time. I mean, Abraham had the means, had the technology, had the money, had the manpower, but for whatever reason refused to build walled cities when everybody else was living in walled cities. Walled cities back then provided all the defenses anybody needed. See, back then, you you, you realize they didn't have police forces, they didn't have armies, you know, you weren't living in some sort of a united government where there's like united you know, workers and fighters protecting you in a police force to make sure that everything was taken care of and everybody was kind of living within some sort of realm of justice. You just didn't have that. You were always vulnerable, especially if you had a lot of money and you lived out in tents, you had a lot of women, especially if your wife was a hottie like Sarah was. All right? We know that because even when she was like 90 years old, she was raising the eyebrows of kings. All right? So she was a pretty good-looking woman. The point that I would make is this, is that Abraham made a conscientious decision to not build a city, but to remain in tents. Why? Because this is Abraham's way of basically decrying against his culture. Everything's crumbling. All the foundations are crumbling. I'm not going to live for that. I'll live in a tent. I'm going to look for a city whose builder and architect and creator is God. So I'm going to live for him. Let me give you a couple examples of some foundations that we have within our culture. I'm going to start with not an intellectual. I'm going to start with actually a physical, right? Universal, maybe, if you want to look at it this way. We, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a universe that probably about 100, 150 years ago, at the height of the Enlightenment, uh, the geniuses of the time basically tried to push God out of the framework of thinking and of thought and basically began to think, you know, we, we think or hypothesize or theorize that the universe has just always been, that it is uh, eternal. It's always been around. Therefore, because everything's eternal, we don't need God. It's just always been around. It will always be. But we know, because of modern science, that it's not true. In fact, we actually know that in modern-day physics, everything that's physical is actually made up of atoms, and atoms are nothing more than energy that's moving. In fact, even the things that physical aren't really physical, they're energy in motion. And we also know, because everything once originated from one main point, it's all going out to some sort of eon point out in the future that's ultimately disintegrating. So at some point, even the very physical foundations upon which we live and build our houses and build room additions to our houses and establish big dens and places where we drop tons and tons of money just to make look good. Do you know that at some point it's all going to be consumed? It will all just deteriorate. It's a foundation that's crumbling. The physical universe in which we live in is crumbling. Take a look at intellectual foundations. You know, again, arising out of the enlightenment, sort of this idea, this notion that, you know, with enough ingenuity, enough uh, education, enough ability, man may have the ability, the power to sort of educate everybody in the world, to help create systems and subsystems that can actually work towards the good of mankind. And there was sort of this great optimism, especially during sort of the, uh, the, the era, the age in which, you know, all sorts of industry was being done. 
You know, everyone's just like, this is great. We live in a wonderful world. We can actually have like toasters that toast our bread. And, you know, everything's wonderful. Isn't the world great? And everybody was sort of on this high optimism kick until First World War. But it didn't take that long for people to kind of rebound from that. Where the whole, the whole pessimism, the whole depression of the world war sort of let down, let off. And everybody sort of got optimistic again and just thought, you know, this is great. We can somehow make everything work good. The world in which we live in is actually working towards a good place. We've got some sort of sociological or intellectual type of concepts that can help us keep moving forward. But the reality is, second world war came around. 9-11. Kosovo. Rwanda. The intellectual foundations are crumbling. They're crumbling. The very ideas, the very concepts, the very philosophies that were established 200 years ago, we look at now and we just think those are silly. Do we really think that 200 years from now, we're going to look back at this era and think, oh, we, we got it exactly nailed down. Everything was right. Or will it be just like the way it's always been 200 years from now, people are going to look back then to here and say, man, people in 2010 had it all jacked up. They were totally wrong. Even intellectual foundations aren't working. What about societal foundations? Okay. We just recently lived this, didn't we? we? We live, obviously, within the concept of the American dream. You're like, you get stuff, build a house, get a family, build a picket fence around it, buy a dog, get a subcompact car that's green. And everything's great. Life is wonderful. Live next to Trader Joe's. Everything is just decent, all right? We have everything we can ever imagine. Life is great. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, we realize people are losing their houses. People are losing their jobs. People that used to, you know, build things for a living now can barely even get a job. They can't even kind of keep things going. They can't barely even keep a food on their table. Dropping things like insurance, dropping things in their lives, not being able to pay for the kids to go to college, and people that are about ready to retire thinking that, you know, we're going to get a big fat nest egg we're going to sit on someday. It's gone. It's gone. Even societal foundations crumble. Do you understand what I'm saying? What about personal foundations? Okay? This is where it's going to get basically where we're at today, here we're at in this particular reality. I want you to think about trends and friends, all right? Trends and friends. Take a look at the next slide. Let me show you some pictures here. All right. I'll describe these. All right. This, this is 80s. This is like my, this is my era. All right. This is my life. This is when I was in high school. All right. Madonna. All right. She's still kind of kicking, but the reality is, is, I mean, rubber bracelets, headbands, you know, all the religious jewelry and all that, lace gloves. People are just like, what? You got to be kidding me. Let's check it out. Those, those, I don't even call those muscle pants. Is that what you call those? All right. Who, who wore those? Raise your hand right now. Time to confess. And repent. All right? Cool. Honestly, I never wore those. I'm absolutely elated to say I've never worn those things. Hideous. And obviously, you got a band like Striper. Remember that? Some of you guys are like, Striper. You think they're still cool? They're not cool. They never really were cool. All right? All right? And I actually have a picture of myself on there. The reason why I have that on there, just to kind of make fun of myself. That was back like in like 87. I think it was my senior year in high school. I was about ready to go on a surf trip to Cabo San Lucas. That was the morning of that. And apparently, back then... It was trendy, and I thought it was kind of cool to, like, like blow dry my hair so I look like Val Kilmer, all right? <laughs> uh, apparently, like, back then, that was cool. I look at that now, and I'm just like, that's hideous. The reality is that all of you woke up this morning, you put on certain clothes, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you thought, I'm looking really good. <laughs> if somehow you can take a picture of that today, go 
future, go to the future 10 years, look at that picture, you will look at yourself now and think, I got it, you gotta be kidding me. I had my hair looking like that, I wore that stupid vest, if you're a guy, you're like, you wore fuchsia, you gotta be kidding me, no guy wears fuchsia. And you will look at yourself and you'll think, can, I, I can't believe I dress like that. That's my point, is that trends are nothing more than just simply a broken, shifting, cracking, broken foundation. And yet how oftentimes do we spend all of our energy and might researching, understanding, knowing, living, learning, establishing trends today? It's a crumbling foundation. Okay, what, what about um, what the Beatles said? They're singing a song, all you need is love. And they were kind of at the height of sort of like the whole hippie deal and the whole concept of just like, you know, what, what, about, what about if in life the pursuits of most people, which has been like goods and money and possessions and stuff, what if that's really not the case? What if really all we need is love? What if that's the main thing? If, that's, if we can just sort of summarize everything and just say, if we just had love, then we'd be good. And the reality is I, I think the Beatles were half right. They're half right. To be honest with you, all we need is love. But here's the problem. Here's where it breaks down. The way that we find love, what we associate as love, or what we attribute to being love, really cannot last. I'll give you an example. Friends. A lot of times people go through life, and they try to establish certain circles of friendships. And they try with all of their might, strength, to try to hold on to that little group of friendships. And they, and they fight as best as they can to hold on to that friendship. And what ends up happening is you realize you can't. It's one of the reasons why I think when people kind of hit their late 20s, maybe early 30s, they start out maybe in their late teens, early 20s, they've got this huge group of friends, maybe like five to 20 of them. They're all kind of hang out, do stuff together. And what ends up happening one by one, if you've been through this, you know exactly what I'm talking about, what ends up happening. People start getting married. They start having babies. And you start looking at your life and you're just like, wait a minute, I, I, I thought friends was everything. I thought love and friendship was, was it all. What I'm trying to tell you guys, it's, that's also a broken foundation. It's a foundation that can't last. It won't last, no matter how hard you try to hold on to it. So what about marriage? I mean, even marriage. Sometimes people are like, if I'm married, won't marriage actually solve the problems? Won't that be a foundation that can last? Let me tell you something. Um, I'm going on 20 years of marriage in March. March, 20 years. Thanks. It's been great. There's been moments where it's been difficult. I would say, honestly, I feel like I've got a great wife. She's very, very patient and merciful with me. And, and that's, that's good because, I, you know, I don't know where, where things would be. But the reality is I'm, I'm difficult to live with. And my point that I want to make is this, is that even in the best of marriages, there's still broken foundation there. What about the rest of marriages? That statistically, we know over half of them end in divorce. I mean, that's not a foundation to put your life into. That's not a foundation to like, give your entire energy and strength over to. And even if you get a good marriage, you begin to realize even that has broken foundations even within it. It's a shifting, broken foundation that cannot be utterly trusted and hold on, holding on to. The point that I would make is this, the negative aspect is this, is you've got to realize the brokenness of all foundations in this world. Physical, societal, intellectual, friendship, personal, 
They're all shifting. They're all breaking. All of them. And the reason why and what you can learn from these things and what you can learn from friends that you had in your life at one point and now they're gone, they're not in your life anymore, is that that's God's loving, merciful way of saying all foundations, all foundations will fail. It is true. All you need is love. But what love are you looking for? If you're looking for the love of a partner, of a friend, of a friendship, of a thing, of a good, of a service, it will fail. But the only love that's eternal, that's lasting, that all you need is the love of God. That's the love that lasts forever. That's what Abraham was able to say. I'm looking for another city. Not one that I'm going to put my hope and confidence in, but I'm going to look for the one whose builder was God. The last thing I want to finish with is this, is that on the positive note is this, is that Abraham basically looked to God. He looked to God. He just realized, you know what? God is the one I'm looking to. I'm not going to build a city. I'm not going to establish roots that will somehow hinder me from that. I will be looking to God. And here's the point that I would make, is that one of the things that we, I understand, Jesus actually gives some information about this in John. In the book of John, chapter 8, verse 56, says this. Uh, your father, Abraham, uh, Jesus was kind of hanging out with these uh, religious leaders that are having this debate about Abraham. And one of the things that Jesus says to him, he says, look, Abraham, he rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Jesus evidently says that there's some sort of information or revelation that Abraham had that somehow through the Messiah, through the lamb, through the lineage, through his life, he was going to bear a son. And that son was somehow going to make things right. Now Abraham, his vision of this was very ambiguous. I don't think, I think it was very general. He didn't really have a very clear, crisp understanding of what it was. But the amount of information that he had was enough to be able to say, listen, I will live in tents for the rest of my life if that's what I have to. But all I'm looking forward to is the foundational city that God has created. Because I know that one day through my lineage, through my son, somewhere down the road, God is going to make all things right. In essence, Abraham was trusting in Jesus even before Jesus lived. Because he took God at his word. You and I, we have way more revelation than Abraham. Abraham looked forward. We look back. We look back at what God did. Because when God gives us the call, when he says, leave, let go, don't cling, don't hold on to the things that are perishable, what we're really doing is we're basically saying, it's not just so much Abraham that we can look at, but there's one even greater than Abraham who actually did depart, who actually did remove himself, who walked away, who let go of glory and power and security and home. Jesus, on mission, sent from the Father, received a call somewhere from the God the Father, way back in the annals of time, where God said to Jesus, you're going to go. Jesus says, I will go. He left all that God had in store for him, or all that Jesus had enjoyed in heaven, whatever that was, the glory, the power, the might, the strength, the hominess, whatever it was, he left all of that to come into our world. So the reality, when we talk about giving up stuff, none of us will give up anything even close to what Jesus gave up for us. Do you understand that? None of us will ever make a sacrifice that's greater than the sacrifice that Jesus made. And Jesus did the sacrifice, made the sacrifice, left the 
freedom, the security, the glory, the goodness, the holiness of the Father to seek and rescue us, to pull us out of all of these parodies of the goodness, beauty, wholesomeness of the Father, which is nothing more than broken foundation with a nice big picture with nice painted shutters on the front, but it's crumbling at the foundation to bring us into that place of glory, security, and hominess with the Father. That's what Jesus does. You know what a Christian is at the end of the day? A Christian is one who recognizes that ultimately because the great debt was paid for by Jesus, every other debt, every other debt in our life is a small thing. This is why when Jesus says, someone stops you on the right cheek, give them your other cheek. It's okay. Debt's paid. Don't you know the debt has been paid? I paid the debt for you. A Christian is one who, because he knows, he lives with the awareness that the great debt has been paid, he's willing to let go of every other debt. A Christian is also one who lives with this awareness because the great disease has been healed. All other diseases that you and I may suffer in this world are just momentary. It may be painful, they may be hard, but they're momentary. We also live with this awareness that because the great house is built for us, or Jesus says, I'm building it for you, I go away and I'm preparing a mansion for you, that we live with this awareness that every other place that we live in is nothing more than a tent. It's not a home. It's not a place of permanent residency. You see what I'm saying? At the end of the day, people who live like this are people of really great stability. They're more stable than anybody else. I'll prove it to you by this last analogy. If you or I had pocket change, just a handful of pocket change, 58 cents, maybe some lint, someone came up to you and robbed you and stole all your pocket change. But let's just say, to add some fun to the story, you had a Swiss bank account with $10 billion in it. But it's over there. And someone steals all your pocket change and a little bit of lint. Would your day be destroyed? Probably not. But what if you didn't have a Swiss bank account with $10 billion in it? What if you didn't have anything? That's all you had was what's in here. You'd be devastated. Because everything you have is right here. And that's the way a lot of us live. We live like that. We forget. That what God has done for us in Christ has provided everything for us. Our hope, our security, home. I want to wrap it up by reading to you guys um, what St. Augustine said. It's just a great thing. I'm going to have Michael come on up and we're going to sing just a second here. But I want you to listen to this. Augustine basically said this um, after this great call and this great transformation in his life. I just I love this little statement and, that he had written and it's out of his uh, confessions. This is what it says. During all those years of rebellion, he asked this question sort of rhetorically. He goes, where is my free will? Basically just realizing that, you know what? My whole life, I wasn't free. I was in bondage. I was in bondage to sex. I was in bondage to my ego, to my pride, to everything. So he asked the question, where is my free will? During those years of rebellion, where is my free will? How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of this fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You guys ever felt like that? Have you ever looked at things in your life and thought, what's the worst thing that could happen to you right now? What's the worst thing that could be taken away from you right now, that if it was gone from you, you'd fear it more than anything else? That's what he says. He says, how sweet it is at once for me to be rid 
of those fruitless joys that I was always so afraid to lose. You know that's true freedom, guys? Do you know that's true freedom? Is to be free from those fears that bind you. And the reason why we're free from those fears is because our great God and Savior, Jesus, came into the world. He left the glory to seek and save us, to bring us to the glory. You understand that? That means every other thing that we are putting our hope upon, putting our faith in, putting our confidence towards in this world, that is nothing more than a broken, shattered, fragmented foundation. It's breaking away. Jesus came to save us from that. Isn't that a good God? That's a good God who actually demonstrates his love for us. He says, I don't want you to build your life on a broken foundation. I want to give you a foundation that will never fade away, that will always be full of glory. And here's what he finishes. He says, you drove all these from me, these fears. You who are the truth, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, you who outshine all light, yet are hidden deeper than any secret of our hearts, you who surpass all honor, though not in our eyes of men who see all honor in themselves, says, oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. We're gonna respond, we're gonna sing to Jesus. This is why we love Christ so much, because that's what he does. He takes our hearts and he pries our fingers off of these things that we're holding on to, clinging to so tightly. And they're actually, actually killing us. And he replaces them with himself, who can infinitely deliver and satisfy. Isn't that a good God? That's reason to rejoice and sing. We're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to worship him. This is totally good reason to be able to just joyfully give our hearts back to Christ. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is reason why you should let go of sin for you to hear the call of God upon your life, to let go of sin, to cling to Christ, to lay a hold of him who is eternal, who will be able to give you life eternal. This is the reason why if you are a Christian and you're messing around, screwing around with sin, for you to stop, for you to let go of those lesser joys the way Augustine describes them. Those things that so oftentimes you're so afraid to lose, to let go. Go of those things by faith, even if it means stepping out, not knowing where you're going. But you know the one who's already gone there because he's proven himself faithful. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings. We're going to partake of communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, please don't partake of communion. If you want to give your life to Christ, enjoy an amazing meal that points forward to a great meal that we're going to have one day with Jesus and actually points back to a meal that Jesus had the night before he died. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's worship. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We devote our hearts now to you. We thank you, God, that in Christ, Jesus was faithful to the call of God. We thank you that Jesus obeyed the Father in everything that he was faithful in obedience even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we thank you that in Jesus we see that all other foundations are just nothing more than crumbling. No matter how nice they look on the outside, they're all crumbling. And in Christ we see an eternal hope.
So God, right now, I pray that you would help our minds and our eyes to be fixed to Jesus, that we would sing to Jesus, we would cast our cares upon Jesus, we'd confess sin to Jesus, and we would partake of the bread and drink of the cup and remember Jesus.